A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome along to this week's edition of the Group Chat. I'm news correspondent here at Virgin Media News, Richard Chambers. Joined by my fellow news correspondent, Zara King. Hello, how are you? And political correspondent, Gavin Riley. Richard, how are you? Good, how are you all doing? Good. Yeah, good. It's yeah. been a busy, actually, news week since we last recorded the podcast. It's also remarkable, very uh, obvious, I know we're going to be talking about weather in a bit, but like mm-hmm. how much it's become coat weather. Where like previously you could go standing outside and you could just wear your suit on the side of the road or do, do your lives there. And now it's like, it's very much hey. not suit weather anymore. I think in I think terms of temperature, it's actually kind of mild, really. No, no, no. Yeah. Joni and I had this conversation just at the news at 12.30 there and we were just saying that we do think that men are warmer than women. We are colder. I just feel like we're That's always Sinead, the floor manager, is nodding. I was freezing today at 12.30. Mm. I'm in the like wear your blazer under your coat stage of the news. Yeah. Like yeah. I always feel like there's always a sign when the seven o'clock lives start to get cold and yeah. you can't feel your toes anymore. That, that is know, the one, really, yeah. It's that's standing around outside somewhere like government buildings yeah. or Lens yeah. House or wherever else yeah. that, that's and you're so, on concrete. Yeah, that's so kind. And, and it never warms up. When it, when it gets cold at wintertime, it never warms up so that you're, it's going to be basically like an icicle for about four months. And so then you walk like a penguin back to your car because you can't <laughs> feel your toes in your heels. Yeah. So yeah, there we go, guys. That's um, Much to look yeah, forward to for the winter months there in terms of news reporting. But obviously the big story internationally remains the situation uh, in Gaza, the uh, war between Hamas and Israel. Uh, In terms of the humanitarian situation, that seems to be the most pressing concern at this point. Uh, The amount of aid that has gotten into Gaza described as being a drop in the ocean compared Mm -hmm. to what's needed Mm. and what's actually getting in versus what's not getting in and what's needed. There's a pretty much a gulf in between all of that as well. Mm -hmm. What's getting in so far, food, medicine, water, again, in very limited supplies. But what's not getting in is probably the most crucial thing of all, which is fuel. Just to put some meat on the bones of that. So before this all kicked off two and a half weeks ago, there would have been regular daily aid convoys going through the Rafa gates anyway, because there would have been just a natural sense of, you know, the UN needs to organise aid for, for those in Gaza anyway. And on a daily basis, you're probably more on top of the figures, but there would have been like over 100 trucks going in on a daily basis. It would have been a pretty regular Mm. shipment of aid, of food, of medicines, of things going into Gaza because Israel controls the supplies of a lot of things. And when we're almost celebratory in the media for the last couple of days talking about a dozen trucks getting through at a time, obviously a dozen is better than nothing. But a dozen is is way less than what is needed or what would have been the case up till only a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, Mm. and it doesn't seem like the actual row over what is going to be allowed in and what's not going to be allowed in is going to be solved. Such a situation, Zara, at this point in time where the UN says we're just going to have to stop wholesale getting stuff in because we haven't got the fuel to do it. Israel is saying if you're looking for fuel... Hamas is all the fuel you'll need, which doesn't really address the concern of the situation because these are like it's the fuel is needed to pump water, to clean yeah. water and keep hospitals going. So it is civilians who are suffering. And even when we talk about other supplies that are, are, are waning, you know, things like even trying to carry out life-saving procedures yeah. on people and not having anaesthetic to do it is quite concerning. Um, and these are procedures that, you know, are not the kind of procedures that would just happen in your normal acute hospital in Ireland today. These are people who are, you know, under bombardment, who are suffering very serious injury and then being admitted to hospital under very critical life, you know, very much life-threatening situations and not even anaesthetic to have a procedure. Uh, Also, those 
conversations about the fact that nobody's getting out of Gaza, Richard, and we will, you know, talk in detail more about that. Um, you know, I know all of us have kind of had different contacts with, with different people who are waiting on news of loved ones who are in Gaza or, you know, who are in Gaza and trying to get out at the moment and no indication as to when that's actually going to happen. Mm. Well, it's, it's just not going to happen is, is genuinely is as honest I can give you about that. Mm. Uh, was chatting to some officials in the Department of Foreign Affairs on foot of what we've been sort of doing in, in keeping in touch with Ibrahim and his family in Khan Yunus in Gaza. Um, there's just no prospect of it. Like if they can't even agree the flow of aid in, yeah. you're yeah. not going to come to an arrangement where people are going to be allowed out of Gaza when Israel is laying a siege to it. Mm. Um there has been some contacts, I understand, between Ireland and the Israeli authorities and the Egyptian authorities because obviously Rafa is the way out. Um, it's just not happening. Mm-hmm. It's just not, there's no prospect of it. Um, I think that's quite demoralising and quite depressing, I suppose, from a lot of people who have been following various stories, whether that be Ibrahim and his family's story or others, um, that this could be a long, long time before we get any clarity yeah. on it. Mm-hmm. And all the while... The things, as you say, fuel is going, water is going, like Ibrahim's situation, they're drinking unclean, unfiltered farm water. Uh, the drinking of unclean water is going to be a huge problem. All of the water treatment facilities in Gaza are currently not running. Uh, the desalination plant is in to turn mm. salt water into drinkable water. That's not running either. So people are just drinking bacteria-led wa- wa- water, which is going to lead to a huge rise in problems like cholera in particular. And also that there's going to be a problem. We'll, we'll talk more about how news has been getting out of the Middle East in a couple of minutes. But just in a, in a very natural sense, if you're a journalist or if you're a, an overseas government and you want to keep in touch with your own citizens, there's going to be the problem of the place going dark very soon. Like it's already, you can see the satellite imagery. It's been literally dark at night time because mm. they haven't been keeping the street lights on for fear of trying to conserve energy. But if you're at a point where people can't charge phones or if the mass that run the mobile networks are gone and people don't have the fuel to you know, run a, a backup generator to plug things in, then people like Ibrahim who want to communicate with the government or with you, Richard, to tell us what's going on, I'm not going to be able to do it. Yeah, I know we had spoken to last week to Mohanad, who is um, a young Palestinian guy who lives in Ireland now with his family. His mum and his baby sister are in Gaza at the moment trying to get out. And Mohanad was telling me that he'd been trying to phone his mum while we were doing the interview. And I suppose every time you're trying to phone and you're not getting through, you're worried about what's happening. Um, and he was saying, so he obviously grew up in Gaza and lived there till he was 15. So he's very familiar and he really understands what's what's happening there. But he was saying that people are, they're charging mobile phones off of car batteries and things yeah. like that, that they are quite, you know, mm. innovative and they're figuring out ways to do it but that obviously you know at at some point that's going to run out but it was interesting to have the conversation with him last week when he was saying that you know his mum was trying to get basically his mum had gone back home to Gaza for a family wedding so his uncle was getting married on the 7th of October and the wedding never actually went ahead because of obviously everything that happened Um, but she had to bring the baby back with her so she had baby Sarah who was born in Dublin celebrated her first birthday here in September with her and now that both of them are stuck they're in Rafa and obviously as Richard said, you know, I suppose they are hopeful, Richard, but it's not looking it's not looking great in terms of them being able to get out. But, um, you know, when you talk to people like Mohanad, who, you know, has been through, he lived through three different escalations while he was mm-hmm. there in Gaza, you know, in some ways, you know, he will say, yeah, you know, we're worried and we're concerned and they are. But like, this is very much a lived reality that he's quite familiar with. And he says that that's one of the saddest things, actually, is that you know, you know, you know what could happen and you know what to expect. And it's just, you know, the vulnerability there is 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 plain to see. But like that, obviously there's concerns, but that, you know, a lot of people know because they've lived through this so many times mm. over, particularly young people in Gaza. It's just, yeah, it, it is. It's, a, it's something which has happened multiple times before, not on this scale in terms of the overall mm. 
violence that we've seen and what potentially could come next. I mean, the, the big question, one which we've seen, the world has been primed for for the last yeah, week. Yeah, it's nearly, nearly two weeks since they issued the evacuation order for the northern part of the Gaza Strip, which kind of leads the question as to what's, you know, if they gave people 24 hours notice, it's been 12 days now. So what is the, not that you ever really want it to happen, but that if, if Israel is threatening a ground invasion or to the ground operations to eliminate Hamas and to go into Gaza, why haven't they happened yet? It's interesting. There are, there are a couple of reasons for this. One of the reasons is actually one, probably the most compelling one from an Israeli point of view, is that one of the groups which has been most vocal against a ground invasion of, of Gaza has been families of hostages who have been taken by Hamas. Now, obviously, we've saw pictures over the last you know, week or so, there's been four hostages released, including, you know, that mm. the footage of the two older women who were released by Hamas. One turned around to shake hands with their former captor, mm. extending shalom or peace to them. Really extraordinary footage for that. But a lot of the families say they're absolutely concerned that if the Israeli military goes into Gaza, all guns blazing, uh, well, then the only outcome for the 200 plus hostages who are currently in Gaza is a negative one, mm-hmm. um, that they would be killed in the crossfire or that they would be executed by Hamas if, mm. you know, Hamas need to abandon their position. There's, there's no leverage. With you can't hand them over anymore. Yeah. So there's nothing to be so, gained. So that is one thing. I think that's something which has been playing out quite prominently in the Israeli me- media. Um, and a lot of those people, the hostages families, are also quite critical of the Israeli government in continually pushing the idea that they're going to go in, but also in just allowing the attack to happen in the first place. But the only other um, international pressure around this, and that is actually something which has ramped up, and I think a lot of people are missing it because everybody is seeing the Western response to Israel being one of pure solidarity, and we're all with Israel against this terrorism, but there has been some nuance to it, which I think has mm. been injected by people like Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, and other people like around the United Nations saying there needs to be a humanitarian pause. And that's actually for the first time, which is on Tuesday, the United States pushed on that. So maybe there is international pressure from Israeli allies against doing something mm. from which there is potentially no return. Isn't the the flip side for that, though, if you're looking at it from the Israeli perspective and you're still living with the memories of Hamas breaking into your territory and taking 200 of your people hostage and the, you know, the deaths at the music festival, including Kim Doughty, they would take the view that a humanitarian pause basically gives Hamas license to prepare itself for a grand invasion that they see it as it wouldn't necessarily be humanitarian pause that you're handing some initiative to your eventual opponent. Yeah, I suppose that's probably the perspective of of, of the um, the hawks, I suppose, on the Israeli side, that they would feel like you can't mm. let up or you can't give an indication that you're going to just back down on this one. So, mm. yeah. But is there some concern as well that obviously, you know, Hamas are far more familiar with the streets of Gaza and familiar with even just the landscape that the mm. Israelis would be kind of going into somewhat like uncharted, unknown waters and that, you know, even just to understand the logistics of where they would be operating yeah. would be very difficult. Yeah, it is. And like they can have all of the intelligence and all of the surveillance they want in Gaza and they do have a lot, the Israelis, but going into the most densely par- populated part of the world in that region where you are, it's just going to be killing fields. Mm. You, there mm. are going to be thousands and thousands of people killed on a daily basis if that was to happen. Um one thing I have noticed over the last couple of days, and has been really since the start of this war, uh, more than two weeks ago now, is just the, so there's been a lot of things circulated over the last 24 hours or so around what Israel would do with Gaza if it was to go in. And a lot of it's just unverified information. Mm. I think that this conflict in particular, I think it's been the weakest time in terms of social media. Um, I think the Irish Times ran an opinion piece, at the, I think it was for the first 24 hours, following the Hamas attack, saying it was the darkest moment in the history of social media. Because as a news 
uh, as a news source and a place to go for news, it's never been less reliable. Mm. It's never been less reliable. I think there's a study actually done by one of those think tanks which monitor social media saying that uh, 74% of the most viral posts promoting misinformation about the Israel-Hamas war in the first week of the conflict were shared by those with verified blue check marks on uh, x.com. Yeah. But it, isn't the people who are verified on x.com now people who are... Yeah, people like me who've paid for it. Did you bin yours? I, I binned the visual bit because the visual bit wasn't what was important. I paid for it because I wanted the ability to post longer videos because sometimes uh, there's okay. exchanges from the doll okay, that you okay, wanted okay. more than two minutes. And also, actually, the ability to edit a tweet was handy for me because sometimes there's a typo or I miss a word and it's good to be able yeah. to put it in after the fact. But yeah, th- this has become, and I say this as someone who's a paying customer of the site, but this has become a real issue with Elon Musk's iteration of Twitter or X as it's now called. Which is that once upon a time when something broke out like this, and we, we saw it in Ukraine, where at least with the idea of there being blue ticks to people who were considered authoritative, or at least mm-hmm. whose bona fides you knew of, it was a very easy at-a-glance way to know that if somebody was posting information, there was a good chance that they were at least doing it with good intentions or that they thought it was original content. Now, people are still kind of ingrained in that culture where they see a blue tick and they sort of think that it carries a certain badge of authority. But actually, I find myself sometimes having to remind myself when yeah. I see yeah. these are just punters. Or, and then or, I'll click in and be like, "Oh, this person has like fifty followers and tweets quite nasty things all the time." Yeah, yeah. Hey, but yeah. that the, the because of the way that the websites now change. So, firstly, there's no guarantee or no level of of authority or quality assurance from what you might see posted by a blue tick account. But also, in another way, and this is slightly more more underhanded. But because Elon Musk is now proposing to share some of the revenue that's garnered by X slash Twitter with the people who produce the most viral content, there's actually a financial incentive to post something that isn't true. And, mm-hmm. and nowadays, it's a lot easier to either sake. either recycle content from a previous military skirmish, whether it's in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world, deep fakes, AI-generated video imagery. Video game footage as Video well game footage. one of the biggest things Pe- in this content. People presenting footage. As if it was real. Yeah. Sorry, yes. I actually was not. Yeah. Yeah. So here, is, here is a blast in a hospital in Khan Yunus. It, it's not. It's footage from a video game, but video games are now so photorealistic Jeez. that unless you knew what you were looking at, it's very difficult to tell the difference. But because Twitter now rewards people who produce the most shared, most viral content, because of the ad revenue that that brings to the site, there's a financial incentive for people to share misinformation. So last year, a war breaks out in Europe, Blue tick indicates, yeah, a certain level of trust in the mm-hmm. content. Now, blue tick indicates somebody who is paid to be prioritised and who gets to monetize the stuff that they put up, irrespective of whether it's true or not. Have you noticed much of this, Sarah? Just in terms of even what sent yeah. you in your DMs, that's something yeah. I see. A lot of stuff yeah. which is either falsified or it's from a particular point of view or it's edited. Yeah, just to pres- or people send something. you links to TikToks and things like that. And they, they sort of, I think as well, like there's a real sort of, and I understand to some degree there's a real kind of like people in, it's, it's interesting the people that will shout for balance and be more balanced and, and show both sides the same people are sharing very much one side or you know are very much kind of sharing content that is totally unverified and then I think you know there are some really good accounts that people can follow and there's ones that are you know people particularly that are on the ground in Gaza who are sharing a lot of content and also sorry to speak to that point I've seen people express frustration about um you know, what they would say, you know, traditional media maybe not showing the raw or the rawest of forms of stuff that's happening, particularly on the ground in Gaza. But I suppose, and again, this is a conversation we have another time, it's a bit different what we're talking about now, but I would say that, you know, on the grounds of like taste and decency, you know, a lot of traditional media are sort of bound by those constraints, actually. And Mm. that, you know, while there are amazing um, journalists working on the ground in Gaza who are showing very upsetting, very raw images, which, you know, at the end of the day, that's the reality of what's happening there as as they report it and as they see it. That's not something that we can necessarily show on the news at 5.30 because, you know, we are bound by, you know, rules of taste and decency. We can't show you, you know, 
bodies and faces lying in the street. Yeah. And that is something which is, as you say, that is a daily occurrence now in Gaza. It is something which people will see across social media. I think it's very difficult to yeah. ignore what's actually happening in Gaza. A lot of prominent photojournalists in Gaza in particular mm-hmm. have had their work spread all around the world. And obviously that, again, is that's accurate information. It is showing the aftermath of airstrikes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But the information war as part of this conflict is probably almost the most important front of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw a lot of that in the aftermath of the hospital explosion uh, mm-hmm. in which there was an immediately... Um, back and forth and some traditional media got sledged by Israel for taking the line from the Palestinian authorities in Gaza, which is run by Hamas, that this was an Israeli airstrike. Still inconclusive as to whether or not mm. that was an Israeli mm. airstrike or not. The New York Times published a really good piece today. We had Maliki Brown um, on the podcast mm. last year. Yeah. Podcast last year. Yeah. He was talking again today because the, um, the American authorities said that they're satisfied this was a Gaza Based rocket, mm. but this was by UK says the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. but they, but the New York Times did its assessment to show that the missile, which has been pointed to in the video, was fired from Israel, and it didn't land anywhere near the hospital. Mm. So it's a completely different thing. It's relevant to the hospital explosion entirely. But this war on the front of social media and Hamas is mostly bo- blocked off most platforms. Still gets this information out. The hostage release was their propaganda as well. Mm-hmm. But Israel is very adept, adept at this as well. Mm-hmm. It's targeting celebrities. It's posting in a very sort of um, mm. engaging way for people. And it is very, very fascinating that you're seeing a conflict of this size and the human losses of it play out in such a, a, an obvious way on social media. It is. And actually, do you know what would be really interesting? I think I said this to you on the phone actually last week. Um, I do remember when I was studying journalism in college, um, it would have been 2007, 2008, there was a Channel 4 dispatches made by Jon Snow and it was it was, it was, was dispatches inside Gaza or war on Gaza at the time. And again, it was showing how difficult it was to cover a war at that time and how you were dealing with one side of information and everything. And that's, what, what was 2007, 15 years ago? Yeah. More than that? Or 16 years ago. 16 yeah. years ago. So That was I, the war in which Hamas took over Gaza, I think. Yeah, so yeah and it was, but it was more like Jon Snow. The whole point of the dispatches was to show how difficult it was to cover a war. But that is so long ago now. And to see the differences now with what you're dealing with in terms of information and misinformation and, and even just from a reporter on the ground perspective, how you manage the information, mm-hmm. I think, is mm-hmm. just the context of it. It has changed quite a lot since then. Yeah, a very difficult job to find good and accurate information but you know just before sharing anything I think the best message is to, to check it to recheck it and see from what verified sources you can find. Now domestically we talked about weather at the start of the show but it is something which has been brought very sharply into focus for people uh, in County Cork in the town of Middleton in Inishtegan County Kilkenny and other parts of the country as well which did suffer mm. quite the deluge over the last number of days and there's a lot of associated issues but Zara, you were in Inishtig, weren't you, for, yeah. for for the flooding? I think it was like on Monday. I think it, it was, was on Monday. Yeah. So on Monday, I got the call to say pack an overnight bag. You know, we're going to have to go on weather watch for the day. And um, we went down to Kilkenny for the news at twelve thirty, and already the rain was incredibly heavy, pouring down. And um, we drove out as far as Thomastown. The river was high. Um, I suppose like it's not. What happened on Monday was less about sort of rivers bursting their banks and much more about the fact that the land is so heavily soaked now mm. in so many places that there's no more soakage left and that the, mm-hmm. the water is just running off now into into roads and so you see flash flooding you see you know 
massive in- roads impassable and, and just a lot of chaos caused and so while we were there I was actually Alan O'Reilly from Carlow Weather I'd been chatting to him that morning and he just uh, called me and said look you know actually won't, someone's messaged me to say that this is happening in Ishti we were sort of 10 minutes away so uh, Ronan McIntyre and I drove out to have a quick look and when we arrived there was four or five units of the fire brigade they come from Greg Namana they come from Thomastown and they were just finishing up the rescue operation as we came on the scene um, and they had rescued over 100 children now I, Sorry, I this was, is from, from a school for people from, who didn't So yeah, so the, the National School in Ishtig, um, it again, just because of the rainfall, it wasn't that a river burst its banks, it just basically became totally surrounded mm. by water. Mm. So you couldn't get in or out the door. And actually, I know some people like commented, I put the post on Instagram, the story up afterwards, and something like, oh, for God's sake, put your wellies on and walk through it kind of thing. But like, the kids went to school that day and didn't have any wellies in the mm. classroom. And like, I mean, like what, we're going to make these like five-year-olds wade through yeah. like and a load also, of water like, to get out? You know, you, know? Just, you, were, you were there at the tail end of it as well. So yeah. like, you know, a lot of the work had already been done. The fire they brigade were there pumping away, a lot of actually, To be fair, so by the time we got that. there, yeah, yeah, good point actually. You didn't very see good it point. at worst. Yeah. Exactly, very good point. Because uh, by the time we got there, they pumped a good bit of it out. Yeah. But like, you know, there was some of the, again, like, you know, don't get me wrong, some of the kids were like delighted, like the excitement of the fire brigade coming and giving you a piggyback out of the school, like, you know, a day they'll never forget. Some of the kids were quite frightened according to the fire officers but um, look I suppose it just it speaks to like the deputy principal said to me the first thing she said to me was like this is it like this is climate change we have Mm -hmm. to accept that you know this is our reality now and she's like Mm. it's coming literally to our door inch by inch the water thankfully didn't get into the school but you know she's just sort of saying anyone who for one second is denying the climate change is reality needs to look at incidents like this in villages like Inishtig and Kilkenny. You know, there was a time where you might have thought flooding was something that was really far away from home or, you know, that it wasn't happening here Mm. and fires weren't happening here. We are in 2023 seeing it happening on our doorstep. You you spotted a scientific paper actually, Richard. You you stuck it into our our show notes that you found actually some some Mm. academic research which kind of proves beyond any doubt that we're now in weather systems which are not normal for us. Absolutely, it is. It just shows the impact. It's by um, Icarus, um, which is run out of um, Maynooth University. Probably, I think as, a, as an academic institute, it's probably just one in Ireland which has done the most work on climate change, I'm sure. I get bombarded with complaints yeah. from people in Trinity and UCD yeah. and TCU yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah. The, the hint about the name, there, though, yeah. it being Icarus, is that we, we've literally gone too close to the sun. We're, we're, we're so, too warm now a lot of the time. Yes, and it just shows the impact for the rising temperatures that we've seen since the industrial era. What that has caused, uh, and in very real terms, is an increase in rainfall and rainfall intensity, which does considerably increase the risk of flooding, as we have seen mm. across the mm. country over the last uh, number of days. So on average, rainfall intensity in Ireland is increasing at a rate of 8.2% per degree of global warming um, and that human-driven climate change is now discernible in Irish weather records. That's including, you know, the warm weather we've seen, obviously. Oh, God, We yeah. have record temperatures yeah. and record, you know, summers there. At the start of the month, you and I were up on budget day, had that fan out. Remember yeah. my little my little handheld yes, fan? Yes, your little Beyonce machine. We yeah. on budget day, which was what date? The, the 7th or 8th of October? Like three, three weeks ago, ago we yeah. were sitting in that coffee shop with the fan going because it was so warm. Yeah. yeah. But the, the big Mad. problem is that the intensity of the rain which is coming now with this is something which is very, very clear and evident. And we haven't seen the worst of it yet. Mm. But when we're already seeing in place like in Ishtig, particularly in Middleton because I think Middleton, the scenes we saw in Middleton um, from last week when the Onakura River um, basically ended up flowing all the way through the town Mm -hmm. um, was pretty devastating and that is something which is going to become a recurring feature 
in yeah. Irish towns and cities over the next you know number of years. That was the real political refrain and fallout from all of this because previously there were standing schemes where affected businesses, for example, were able to access up to twenty grand of state supports, and not alone was the the scale of the damage in Middleton clearly like dwarfing that by way of a proper response, but also there was a recognition from government that you know this is going to be in some places unfortunately the new normal. We're going to see storms of this intensity, damage of this severity, much more regularly than we used to, and there's going to have to be an almost permanent state support fund set up for people who are affected by this. And it's also interestingly kind of kickstarted this conversation, at least within Leinster House, I don't know about anywhere else, about how do you try to at least curb the excesses of that? Like what can you do to the natural world to try and minimise the impact of heavy rain like that. And I mean, you were mentioning even one of the ideas that they do in Northern Ireland, you were saying that they they pay farmers to sort of pick up their, their paving somebody, slabs. Yeah, somebody, I, mean, like I don't want to give information that I haven't 100% sure on what the nature of it is, but there mm. was something I was that somebody was talking to me about, about, you know, paving and having permeable paving or driveways and whatnot, mm. as opposed to just having, you know, water running off it. Yeah. I don't know so the exact... But it's, instead of a puddle forming at surface level, it makes it easier for it to drain down. It and goes that was down the whole into the... I spoke to Eamon Ryan on Monday about all of this and they said is, is that the sort of thing that we could see where if there's you know now state supports for people to grow forestry and forestry mm. is an important part of that too because trees soak up water through mm. their root system yeah. and he said he, he wasn't going to commit to a measure like that on the hoof but that he was talking a lot about needing to change the even the, the, the breeds of grass that you have because if you have grass of different soil types or of different breeds it, they generally tend to be more efficient in soaking up the moisture specifically in urban areas like like the likes of Middleton he was saying we need to have more trees because trees mm. are, are yeah. a very natural sponge and we have to do more work to make towns and cities more of a sponge so that their, their surrounding areas don't just get completely saturated whenever the rain does come and with warmer temperatures comes more moisture in the air so that when the rain does come mm-hmm. it's going to come with more intensity and it's going to like flood the area more quickly. Can I also just can we just quick chat about flood defence schemes because I just feel like we use these terms flood defence schemes and we all talk about flood defence schemes and money was allocated for this and money and then I'm still going back to the same towns that I've been doing stories on for years yeah. that are yeah. getting flooded like I remember being in Enniscorthy a couple of years ago and, and like many times I've been in Enniscorthy and the town's been destroyed and you know places like uh, like even in Inishtig the other day the local Fine Gael Cancer said to me oh we were actually allocated over a million euro for flood defence back in 2017 which is six years ago mm. and I was like and how's that going? He's like well it hasn't been spent yet and I was like well why not and he's like, I'm not really sure. Why not? Why is there no money being spent on flood defence? Like, what's actually going on? The couple of points I'd make in that is, first of all, that's mental, isn't it? That, you just, that some of the stuff isn't spent. Bananas. Some of this comes down to planning. Some of it comes down to things even like on a coastal level where you have, you know, long-running Irish Times front pages about Clontarf and the flood defences mm. there and whether or not residents want to see a big wall in front of the sea. Mm. And it's like, well... But relying on have... bags of sand to make sure that your life is not destroyed. Well, kind of like, I mean, you can have the sea on the other side of the wall or you can have the sea in your garden. Like, which do you want? Yeah, you know, the... But this is the problem is that you can build whatever you want in terms of flood defences. Nothing is impermeable Fair. in terms of actual yeah. flood barriers, flood mm. walls, locks, anything to open up things and, and, and stop it. The change is happening. You have to prevent, you have to try and limit the effects of the climate change, which is going to make this a recurring thing. Mm-hmm. All you can do, like the flood defence schemes are mitigations. They should be in place if they've been promised and planned and they should work in some places in a lot of towns around County Cork. There's been repeat plan- complaints mm. whenever the places have flooded. I remember it was in Skibbereen I think it was last year or the year before. Mm. 
flood defence is there didn't have a great deal of joy in keeping the water out yeah. so some of them just don't work yeah. on, the, on the way that they, sh- they should but again the main pro- problem is the weather's getting get it worse the climate's yeah. getting worse we're going to have more intense rain we're going to have more flat fl- flooding so you need to do much bigger picture stuff than individual localised yeah. things yeah. I seem to remember that in, in some towns particularly in Munster and, and indeed ones that have been damaged in the last 10 years that have had the ravages of flooding and who have had flood relief works money set aside sometimes and I don't want to single out any particular town because I don't want to say something that I can't necessarily back up but I know that there is sometimes complaints that what is designed is not in keeping with like the architectural heritage of the town so we you've got like towns, towns that are a little bit historic or that almost have like a kind of a medieval vibe to them where it's all you know mm. old brickwork and then you suddenly you're, you're plopping in a 21st century brickwork flood relief thing that they just don't feel like it's a very n- nice fit or that it feels like it's an alien construct on the side like I, I get those concerns but you're letting the perfect be the enemy of the good yeah but also, like, these it, things are going to happen you need them but isn't it also the point that in terms of what Eamon Ryan is talking about there which is more natural world solutions mm. which is in terms of why are we paving absolutely everything in <laughs> well, our towns yeah. and cities why is mm. our urban architecture playing against us that the, the less of an eyesore solution is probably the most useful one in mm. the long term by changing the way that we've designed our towns putting more grass in putting more natural soakage in the land yeah. probably want to do but one thing Zara do you think because I know it's interesting to hear from you know the, the person in the school you were talking to yeah. and hearing from politicians as well is like oh climate change is happening so we have mm. to act on it I just have a I've, maybe I'm getting cynical but I'm worn down with whenever something bad happens relating to the climate of a politician saying we must do something about it and then we eventually just we end up do not doing it. must do something and then they just don't do it. Do you, know, yeah. do, do you think that that's something we were in danger of doing here again or is it something that because it's happened yeah. in such a tangible way that things might actually happen? I, yeah I know and I do feel as well you know like when you look at the situation you kind of I, sometimes it frustrates me when, you know, it gets brought back to, of course, everyone individually has to do their own bit, but it kind of frustrates me sometimes when, you know, we'll become fixated on on things like, you know, just only keep cop schemes and things like that, as opposed to looking at like a bigger picture. Do you know what I mean? I think that like, obviously, individual action is important. But I think, yeah, you're right, Richard. I think a more broader approach to like actually targeting these issues um, is important. But I don't know if we, I often think as well, what is it they say? What's that saying about like, crisis don't make for good planning or something or what's that saying that you know what is it they say hard hard cases cases make make bad law hard cases make bad law Mm. but actually just think in this instance like you know how many more times are we going to have these things happen before we actually see any sort of change or yeah I guess the danger is that you mop up you paint up you try to replace the place everything you get by again you you reopen you don't realise that there's a prospect just Mm. as it was last week of about 12 or 24 or 36 hours notice before you're in an orange rain warning and suddenly it happens all over again and you have to do something to break out of the cycle that you're doomed to repeat. And actually, sorry, I would say just to be fair to Matt Aaron, you know, they have been kind of good in terms of allocating that warning. I know people were critical and saying, why wasn't it a red warning? But, you know, I think that actually the Matt Aaron sometimes will get, you know, criticised yeah. if they if they put out a warning and it doesn't always meet people's expectations. But actually, the system by, by and large does does work quite well. Yeah, I think yeah. they said that they are changing elements of it to make it more that the warnings will focus in terms of the impact of it rather than what the weather is going to be. Yeah. So like, for what it is at the moment, yellow is sort of a localised thing. Mm. Orange can be very dangerous. Red is the highest level of alert. Yeah. Yeah. But what it's going to be, I think the system was trying to morph it towards is to be what level of damage you're going to see. So for yeah. oranges, you could see trees uprooted, all that mm-hmm. sort of, of, of thing. Because they are mindful that they get, they get an awful and an almighty 
hammering yeah. and they, they either overworn yeah, or they, they underworn. That, they that's what the UK Met Office does. You might have seen some of the rows in previous years that when you see uh, maps produced previously by Met Aaron and it was almost like there was a weather wall between Straban and Lifford or between the Dock and Uri that the weather just didn't apply inside Northern Ireland. Really the, the reason why they found it very difficult to do that is because the UK Met Office has a different gradient system than the Republic does. So although they're both yellow, orange and red, they actually had different criteria. So Richard, as you said, what we're now moving towards is what the UK has already done, where it's a combination of how extreme will the weather be and how disruptive will that be to human activity or the threat to human life. Up until now, Met Aaron has been, oh, this much rain, that's yellow, then that bit more rain, that's orange and then red. And they're going to have to get to the point where they, they acknowledge that, well, it's possible for yellow rain to actually to have an awful impact in your area and mm. then it needs to be upgraded and that you need to have a, a bit of a human lens on, on what's going on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. We've talked a lot on this podcast around the problems accommodating people coming to this country, fleeing war zones like Ukraine. And that problem has been brought back into the political arena this week with a surprise cabinet row out um, at, at cabinet, naturally, that's where you have cabinet yeah. rows, I think. Um, but it was a surprise row. Uh, but although it's interesting in the back and forth, and the cabinet will come to it, obviously, let's start with what exactly happened here. But it is interesting in the back and forth, there was a bit of you shouldn't have been surprised. We did talk about this multiple times before. Yeah, so it was a surprise row because it wasn't actually on the agenda for this week's cabinet meeting, but it ended up coming up anyway. And part of what's so contentious about this is some are aggrieved that it was discussed despite not having been pre-signaled. So first of all, what what is being uh, floated and it's not being proposed and it's worth stressing that because this might not be what ultimately comes to pass. But one idea that has been kicked around by officials in the Department of Integration, mm-hmm. which is responsible for the housing of Ukrainians, is that in future, any Ukrainians coming to the country should only be guaranteed state-provided accommodation for a maximum of three months. And after that time, if they can enter the labour market and fend for themselves, then then fine, good luck to them. Or if they can find somebody who's prepared to, to let out a house or a spare room or whatever else, then then good luck to them. But that the state cannot indefinitely accommodate them. Okay, pause. What is actually going to be their situation for the three months where the state is providing accommodation for them. Why, like Because we've seen the quality mm. of the accommodation deteriorate to a massive extent yeah. over the 18 months. Which is why we've seen Strad Valley. And exactly, yeah. Likes, so yeah. so what, what exactly has been proposed to them? Not quite the, the Strad Valley levels of things, but the proposal was to have regionalised reception centres and that you would be located to one of those for three months. And then after that, they would politely ask you to move on. And then if anyone else was coming on, they'd move you into it. Now, the... Does, it, does a regional reception centre mean like essentially a tented refugee camp? They're hoping that it wouldn't be of that grade. They're hoping that it would be something a little bit more permanent than that. That but it can would we, be a like, we need structure. to be upfront about this now because we've talked about this so many times before. Like when they were looking for vacant buildings and they were looking for places to host people, they didn't exist. You know, we talked before yeah. about like parish halls and community halls in the beginning when the war first broke out. That people were, you know, they gave <laughs> up the parish hall and it was for a couple of months. But then I suppose it was things like mother and baby groups and you yeah. know. 
yoga and you know people had community events that had to go on in yeah. these community and, halls and, and they couldn't actually uh, put beds in there yeah and, and likewise there's a lot of hoteliers who, who yeah. gave up their hotels yeah. and who agreed to contract that yeah. for a while but then ultimately decided okay I, I need it back for tourist season or I've got other so what businesses. does the government think is going to actually be well, a reception centre well this is what, what is kind of almost more contentious about it because like you said th- there's the short term thing of well what you do in, in sort of normal terms the, the reason why there is government reluctance in some quarters to this idea is because what happens after the three months? If someone has come from Ukraine to Ireland, they're accommodated by the state for three months and then the state says, right, you're on your own feet, two feet now. If you can't provide for yourself, there's a chance that you end up living on the streets. And although the state in those circumstances wouldn't have a legal responsibility to make sure there's a room over your head, there's a level of sort of common decency where the state doesn't want to see you stuck. And then you'll end up living in the same kind of emergency accommodation that 12,000 people already are. Now, in a very somewhat self-interested sense, this has caused some ire for the Department of Housing because they're obviously responsible for the running of emergency accommodation shelters and the likes of that. And their attitude is, we're already swamped. We, mm-hmm. we can't be in a mm-hmm. situation where Ukrainians are coming six or seven or 800 a week as they currently are. And after three months, suddenly then they become the Department of Housing's problem, if you like. So part of the reason why they're concerned is because there's a cynical suspicion among some that Roger Gorman is trying to turn this into a Fianna Fáil problem. His department is already swamped and they want to make it someone else's mm-hmm. gig. Another reason why they're swamped, and this goes back to how you introduced the item, Richard, is that this has been discussed at a uh, cabinet subcommittee. There's, there's a cabinet subcommittee which discusses these Ukrainian issues and it's been discussed by the coalition leaders, leaders yeah. twice in the last fortnight. Where's the surprise? Well, the surprise is because usually, in the order of things, uh, something which is moderately contentious going to cabinet gets cleared by the coalition. Are these not first. intelligent people that they can take up things which have been raised by their lead- to their leaders and at the cabinet subcommittee? They, they, and that, they're, that at the end of a cabinet meeting, that something which isn't on their list of items, it takes them so off guard that they start killing each other over it. Well, th- th- that's a question of perspective because <laughs> um, one would think, in some senses, and some at cabinet saw it as being inflammatory and confrontational that this having been discussed internally three times already without there being any consensus as to how to move forward meant that raising it at cabinet was a deliberately inflammatory thing to do. Interesting. Others take the view that, well, if this is a a growing issue and there's going to be some significant pressure on the state coming into this winter where you could again have six or seven or 800 coming in per week and no obvious solution of how to house them indefinitely, that you just can't allow it to go ignored, that it needs to be raised in some form or other. And that's why it was. Can I just state the obvious as well? Because I feel like this is something that got totally lost in this conversation today is like when we talk about people that are coming here, we still have to remember that they're fleeing a war Mm -hmm. zone. These are people who are enormously traumatised, who have been through a horrendous time and particularly those who may be only coming now for the first Mm -hmm. time from Ukraine. Remember what they've lived through. Remember that they have seen horrors untold. And like, I just think that... uh, like it's a bit, it's a bit passive and it's a bit, it's actually a bit insensitive to sit there and say 90 days and you're out, pal. And like, you know, you know, you get 90 days and you figure it out for yourself. I mean, where is the kind of human decency? Where is the, yeah. you know, where is the kindness in that? And I know, look, you know, they, people will say there's a limited amount of resources and kindness can only go so far or whatever. Mm. I understand that. But I just think as well, like we're not dealing with people who are, in, you know, just sort of like moving here for the sake of it, you're dealing with people who are yeah. incredibly yeah. traumatised, who have had really, really difficult circumstances. And I just think it's kind of, it's it's somewhat heartless to some degree. Uh, yeah, I, I can see, I can definitely see where that perspective comes from. I think that they can do a better job perhaps in explaining and laying out the tools. If they're going to have people moving from state-based accommodation within 90 days, they need to have pathways in terms of speeding Absolutely. up the 
you know, helping people to get into the labour market, whether that's in terms of, you know, I don't even know, internship or apprenticeship programmes to or get people involved have somebody in an early stage. who's like, um, somebody who's like a mentor to you, like you're assigned to somebody, a liaison, yeah. somebody who helps like you to a, integrate. A big brother type yeah. that sort of helps exactly, you to get in. Yeah. Yeah. This is a conversation that's happening in other EU countries. Germany has introduced a way of, it's lessened its language restrictions, for example. Mm. So people coming from Ukraine can integrate into the labour market quicker without having German as a language. Mm. One thing which I did notice that Michal Martin apparently um, lost the rag over to some degree was the a level of education provided to children in those 90 days where the state is to provide accommodation for under this proposal, which is in the course the case of the situation. But basically that they would no longer go to the local school, that the tuition would be provided by oh, yeah. tutors within, within this kind of reception centre. But then if you're, but if you're supplying to them out within 90 days and you're going on, then how, how do you provide for someone's education if they're plopped in for three months and then suddenly they're gone again? How do you do that on oh, a sustainable well, way? Well, it's the opposite to integration, by the way. 100%. It's the opposite to integration yeah. because, make, yeah. 100%, because like, you know, the, one of the big things with smaller communities that have taken in, you know, families and mm. Ukrainian families is when the kids go to school, the mums meet the other mums at the school yeah. gate and people yeah. build relationships and they go for a cup of coffee and they become friends mm. and then play dates happen and people go to each other's yeah. houses and that's how integration, it, that's yeah. actually where the ground if you're in a set aside really. facility that doesn't yeah. happen because you don't have those interactions yeah. to your point though about people who are only coming to Ireland now and only leaving Ukraine for the first time it, it is a, very, a really really important point but there is also an aspect of and I don't say that all this to be unkind because the, the state is actually not very good at keeping stats on this but Michal Martin estimates now that about 30% of those coming from Ukraine to Ireland now have actually already been in another EU country and not just yeah. by way of transit that they okay. have temporarily lived there and the state, obviously, there's there's multiple reasons why they might want to do that. There might be a sense of family reunification because war has become normalised. So they now know that they need to you know, get together and build an extended family. They might already be here. A certain amount of that might be the provision <laughs> of um, accommodation or the sorts of service that are provided for them. A lot of it might, might by the way, be the language barrier yeah. because we are the, the primary English-speaking EU member state. So they might come here because of that kind of reason as well. Uh, so the state's not very good at keeping that. But the, the state is trying to get to the bottom of, well... If you can live somewhere else and the terms might be more generous, like in Germany, for example, where they'll provide you with more guaranteed yeah. longer term accommodation mm-hmm. and they, they put more money into your pockets to help you get by. But they're trying to get to the bottom of that. And there is a concern that if family reunification is now going to be the medium term thing and Ukrainians scattered across the Europe all want to go and live in one place, that Ireland mm-hmm. might be the place they come. And that's where we have a bit of strain on our resources. It is. Yeah. And I think it's something which obviously came up in that cabinet discussion as well as about the, the, the level of uh, entitlements that people would have if they do come here, that they are seen as not having changed in any way or the accommodation offering hasn't changed in any way since the war started 18 months ago. And what was put in place in an emergency capacity at the start of the war may no longer be suited to something a year and a half in, yeah. particularly if they feel that Ireland is taking in more than per capita anywhere else is in, in some situations, but also because of the, the, the political impact of that is something which does allow right-wing groups, far-right groups to exploit mm. a narrative that Ukrainians are coming in here and they're getting everything, which yeah. is something which has taken root in a lot of communities. But also it, what their solution or the solution that has been you know put forward in this presentation, which everybody kicked off about in Cabinet, mm. The solution of putting people out of state-provided dormitory-based accommodation into, right, go go find something private for yourself. But that just puts the pressure once again onto the pool of available rental accommodation, for example, mm-hmm. around the country. And that's going to breed resentment in itself as well. So I, I think this is a dangerous, dangerous political negotiation and navigation to get through. Yeah. I don't know how you do it without 
taking some stains along the way. I know we're going to talk about housing, yeah. you want to say, but just that there is actually concern within government levels about those two issues being conflated and the very fact that we're talking about them in the same part of yeah. the podcast means that they've kind of already lost that battle, really. Well, that's exactly what Simon community were saying. Communities were saying today, and um, Wayne Stanley was saying to me earlier on the news at 12.30 that like they are two totally separate issues, but they are going to collide if this proceeds ahead. And that's the mm-hmm. biggest concern is the worry. You know, today... Um, uh, the Simon community is talking about the fact that there's only 27 properties suitable for housing assistance payments that were available to rent in Ireland last month. It's the lowest figure they've ever recorded in the housing charity. So it's very clear that the private rental stock, it just does not exist. What a moment for the good people of Moy in County Cork. Richly deserved. Uh, not alone were they backed up by Zara King in last week's podcast. <laughs> But Born in both, both Zara and Fromoy were vindicated <laughs> as uh, Graham Norton, for whatever reason, apologised to Fromoy on behalf of something somebody else said on well, his programme. I, I did say last week you, did. you would apologise yes, and you, you all doubted me you, and I said I'm telling you. You, you. you sat in this chair and I sat in this chair and you said, do you reckon that Graham Norton will apologise? And I was like, he's got bigger things what to fry. What did he say? I'll tell you what he said, guys, just so you're all, you're all sharp and listening here like a pencil. Uh, uh, pencil he said, in last Friday's episode, I want to be- begin with an apology. Last week there was someone on the red chair and they were less than kind about the town of Fermoy in Cork in Ireland. Um, so basically he said we'd like to apologise in fairness I did defend for Moy and said it was yeah. the home of the big pencil but sadly I must apologise again because apparently the giant pencil has in fact been removed he said on the upside for Moy did win cleanest town in Ireland in 2007 and 2018 so I'd imagine it's still pretty clean big up for Moy <laughs> congratulations so he had to apologise for his fake news Cork man apologises why did he have to apologise because he's from Cork no, but why did he, he? But like we, you made this point as well, Gavin. That you were annoyed at the idea that he had to apologise. I, I just I think that we we have this really strange affectation in Ireland where we love to talk ourselves down, but as soon as anyone from outside Ireland does it, we're like immediately like, no, no, you can't yeah. do that. Only we are allowed to disparage ourselves. So the idea of somebody from Scotland disparaging for Moy would be unacceptable. But to be honest, if someone locally said this town is a kip and I hate it, we'd all. Yeah, but also when a Cork man was chairing the conversation, you know, like I just mm-hmm. think Cork man apologised to Cork is the most Cork thing ever, like, and <laughs> yeah. I kind of love it, so I'm so here yeah. for it. <laughs> and the international television agenda is being set by Cork. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one more thing before we go in today's wrap-up corner. Uh, have you ever heard of the Kinnegat Corner Hotel? I have not, actually. I saw this on the notes, but I have no idea what it is. Go so on. The Kinnegat Corner Hotel? It, it is not okay. a hotel. It does not exist, but it is on Booking.com, or it was on Booking.com, uh, one of the most popular places for people to book holidays. Yes. Uh, effectively, it was a scam but multiple people turned up at a person's gaff in County Westmead in Kinnegad over the past three weeks because it was listed as a hotel on the website. So a number of couples arrived there thinking it was a hotel. They'd booked their stay oh, on no. Booking.com, a very legitimate website. Mm. Oh, dear. And they turned up and they were like, can we stay? They're like, this is just a house. We aren't a hotel. Can we stay anyway? No. So we turned up having booked an anniversary at a, at a place oh, that just no. doesn't exist. And they were like, can we stay here for our anniversary anyway? This is, this is baffling because you'd think if you were doing a scam like this, that you'd take the payment up front in advance, then you'd run away with the money. But Booking.com doesn't require you. You can do. Yeah. But you're not required to make the payment in advance. You can show up and notionally pay cash when you're there. So this just kind of seems like a scam, which is as much about mischief making than it is about trying to get money out of people, which I just find really bizarre. It, it's yeah. so weird because like the, the listing and, and you know photos of the listing and screenshots of the listing have been put up. So they basically cloned photos from a different hotel 
so it did look like legit. You're looking across all these, yeah. here's all these double rooms, here's all their rates. And just none of it existed. Apparently it was the, the photos were taken from a hotel in Perth, Australia that is also listed on Booking.com. So, um, I couldn't tell from the weather outside, no. That, like Kinnegad is always that balmy in summary. Yeah, so Breen, Breen McDonald, who's the person uh, whose house this was, uh, said they contacted Booking.com to get this down. And it took weeks for them to do it. Oh. All the while they had more and more people turning up <laughs> looking to stay at the, the Kinnegad Corner <laughs> Hotel. Uh, so yeah, there you go. A fine town. A stone's throw from Meath has a lovely carvery in Harry's. Other carveries are available. <laughs> if, if you are the victim of any of these sort of odd scams, and your house is put up uh, on booking.com <laughs> or anywhere else to let us know uh, because uh, I'm mystified by that and I think that's I really want someone on to tell us actually if you showed up at that hotel and you're listening to this podcast join us for a bonus episode yeah. we want you on or if you're responsible for the scam let, let us know what your motivation was oh, it no. might not be money we're not either. offering a platform to the scammer Gav okay fine forget <laughs> I said anything right. no scammer go to other carveries instead that's <laughs> all we have time for this week's episode of the group chat we'll be, all be back next week Gavin, Sarah thank you very much and next week by the way I'm going to read Britney Spears' book so stay tuned for that I'm going to get the audio version oh, of it wow. we're doing that next week okay <laughs> watch to look forward to that <laughs> bye everyone. bye powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.